And Lord, to consider that you would share that with us, that as we look around and we see the beauty of the day and, and just how glorious the day is and how glorious you've made nature and how the word tells us that your glory is reflected in the things that we see and that you share that glory with us and that we get to be participants in it by the cross and the gospel. And I would just pray that our hearts might be encouraged that you might help us to live better now in light of the time that's to come, that we would keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, that we would see him, the author and perfecter of our faith, seated at the right hand of the Father, seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Lord, we pray that you might take your word this morning and encourage us and teach us and inspire us and provoke us to love and good works, that we might bring glory to you, that, that we might be shining, as it were, reflecting that which is true of you in the world in which we live, where there's so much ugliness and so much anger and so much sadness and despair. And we remember Jason again, just lifting him up to you, and we pray for the doctors to give them wisdom, Lord, and skill in the dealing with whatever issues they have to deal with, but comfort most of all for his family and those who love him, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I am a great fan of J.R.R. Tolkien and of his novels and of the films that were made from his novels and Lord of the Rings. And in the second film, The Two Towers, there is a final scene at the end of the film that every time I say it still brings an emotional awareness to me of faith and hope and longing and joy. And it's in the final uh, speech that Sam makes to Frodo when all around them looks dark and there's just so much death and destruction. And Sam says, it's all wrong. By rights, we shouldn't even be here. But we are. It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo. The ones that really mattered, full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't want to know the end. Because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come. And when the sun shines, it will shine out the clearer. Those were the stories that stayed with you. That meant something even if you were too small to understand why. And you see, it is my great privilege to share with you this great story. The story that inspired Tolkien to write things like this, inspired C.S. Lewis to imagine the Chronicles of Narnia, the kind of story that has gripped the imagination of people for the last 2,000 years. A grand story, a great story that begins before the dawn of time and will end never, but will continue on when time is no more. The darkness must pass and a new day will come. There is a new world coming. And the question is, are we waiting for it? Are we longing for it? Are we expecting it? 
All this month, we've been looking at end-of-life issues, issues that deal with the end, where the end is just the beginning. In our first message, we talked about what happens one minute after you die. And we're going to go back and visit that a little bit this morning. What happens in the moment that I pass from this existence into the next? In our second message, we asked the question, where will you spend eternity? And we looked at what the options were according to the Bible. That there wasn't just sort of a multiple choice question here, but rather that there are really only two eternal destinies awaiting every person who's ever lived. And that by grace, we get to be welcomed into the presence of God by virtue of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That the destiny, the outcome for the believer is one of glory and joy and peace but for those who reject the gospel who ignore the signs that God has left in the world regarding his power and his glory for those who stubbornly hold on to what they think is true or what they want to do as it has been recorded in the word of God that God gives them their final desire which is an existence without him forever and ever and ever And then last week we looked at the fact that this body matters. That God is not saving some some disembodied spirit or ghost. But rather there is a resurrection coming for the just and the unjust. And we looked at what that resurrection meant. That this mortal flesh will be transformed and will be given a nature that is both immortal and imperishable. And one that never sees corruption again. And so today, we're looking at the final piece of this, and that is the new world that is coming. And of course, what in the world am I talking about? I mean, how can we talk about anything regarding heaven? How can we talk about anything about this new world? I mean, doesn't the Bible say, the things which the eye has not seen or ear has not heard, which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. If you would turn to the Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, where that verse is found, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we're going to be looking at a few passages today, but we're going to start with 1 Corinthians chapter 2 because I think it's an important one to understand just how amazing it is that what we're going to be talking about. The Apostle Paul quotes Isaiah when he talks about how there are things that God has planned, the eye has not seen or the ear has heard, nor has even entered into the heart of a man. People haven't even imagined it, right? And you know what was so funny about this verse? Is that this verse is so often quoted about heaven. It is the verse that so often is quoted about heaven. We can't imagine what heaven is like. It has not entered our eyes, our ears, our imagination. And you know what's so funny about that? Is that it is the exact opposite when we quote it of what Paul intended. When we quote that verse, we're saying, oh, we can never possibly imagine this. But would you please read with me verse 10 where it says this. These are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. I don't know if you saw that. For us, God revealed them through his spirit. You see, when Isaiah wrote those words about eye not seeing nor ear hearing or entering into our imagination, he was writing under the old covenant. And what he was saying was, look, look, what God is going to do is going to blow your minds. 
And you see, when Isaiah wrote those words, there was not a Jew walking the earth who could have ever have imagined that Yahweh, the creator of the universe, the God of all power, the God of all glory, would become an infant in Bethlehem. It would never have entered their imagination that the Lord of hosts, of heaven's armies, the God who speaks and thunders from Mount Sinai would be taken by his creatures and humiliated, spat on, beaten, ridiculed, mocked, and then nailed to a cross. It would never have entered their imagination. They could not comprehend it. When Jesus spoke of these things, they could not, even his disciples, after being with him for days and weeks and months and years, they still didn't understand what is he talking about? Dying and betrayal and death. What is going on here? And you see what Paul is saying. This is the good news. This is the gospel. This is what was the foolishness of God, which is wiser than all the wisdom of man. That what we could not conceive has already happened. What we could not have imagined, God has done. What we could never have asked him to do, that we could never have been worthy of him doing it, he already took the initiative and did it for us in the sending of his son to be our Savior. And so when Paul is quoting this verse, he's not talking about heaven. He's not talking about the new world that's coming or the new heaven or the new earth. He's talking about what God did in the gospel. What God did in the sending of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And how to the Greeks it's foolishness and to the Jews it's a stumbling block. That they can't get their brains and wrap their heads around it because it's just something that's a scandal to them. And you know what? It still is today. It still is today. It's, for example, a scandal in Buddhism. Buddhism cannot accept the idea that the law of karma could be broken by somebody else. It's a scandal in Hinduism. How can you bear someone else's karma? How can you possibly take someone else's place? Each one of us must bear our own responsibility. It is a scandal in Judaism. How could possibly you be set free and forgiven when you're the perpetrator of the guilt? When you're the one who's not, you have to try to propitiate your own sins. You have to sacrifice on your own behalf. You're the one who has to make up the effort. And in Islam, it's still a scandal. How would God ever let his Messiah, his anointed, die on the cross? You see, it's still a scandal even to this day. And yet, it is the revelation of God revealed to us by his spirit. And it's because of this that if I were to die today, I have the assurance of sins forgiven and of eternal life. The Apostle John said this in his letter, These things I have written unto you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. You see, John wanted his readers to understand that the gospel, the gospel gives us assurance. 
It's not a hope so. It's not a, a wish so. It's not wishful thinking. But rather that I might understand that the sacrifice that Jesus made is so complete. And God is so satisfied that anyone who puts their trust and confidence in him has nothing to fear from death itself. That Jesus, according to the book of Hebrews, destroyed him who had the power of death. That is the devil. So, um, if I were to die today, I could say like Paul, to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. So where is home and where is the Lord? The Apostle Paul says to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. Well, where is the Lord? Well, Paul says in, in Philippians that our citizenship is in heaven and from it heaven we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is in heaven. And so Paul, when he died, when, when uh, Nero ordered, the emperor Nero ordered the apostle Paul's execution, it's very famous, Nero asked for an audience with the apostle Paul. We have no record of the conversation that they had together. Nero met with the apostle Paul, spoke with him for some period of time, and then sent him on his way, and shortly after that had Paul beheaded. Now you see, in Roman times, if you were a Roman citizen, you were exempt from crucifixion. In other words, crucifixion was such a terrible form of execution that Roman citizens had the mercy of being killed by the sword. And so the Apostle Paul, because he was a Roman citizen, could not be crucified, but the Apostle Peter could. And so Peter, because he was a Jew and not a Roman citizen, was crucified, and according to the church tradition, uh, at the moment of his crucifixion, Peter said, I'm not worthy to be crucified in the matter of my Lord. Would you please crucify me upside down? It's kind of an interesting concept, but that's what the church tradition says, Peter was crucified upside down. So here you have these two great apostles, both dying for the conviction that Christ was alive. How disconcerting it must have been to hear, to, for Nero to hear that there is another Lord. That there is another king whose kingdom transcends the boundaries of Rome. Whose kingdom is not of this world. Whose kingdom shall never end. And there's nothing you can do about it, Nero. How disconcerting it must have been to those Romans to hear Peter not fight, not protest but actually embrace his execution how disconcerting it must have been where they thought they would get pleasure out of watching the torment of one being crucified and here he was taking all the fun out of it you see with the apostle paul and the apostle peter to be absent from the body is to be at home with the lord and so there are people here that we all know who have been a part of this life of this body here, this fellowship of Christians, people in your life who you've known who have gone on to glory, as we say, who've died and they have been buried or cremated and their lives have ended here on earth. But as according to the scriptures, their life as they know it has not ceased to exist. Their life as we know it has changed. But the life as they know it has not ended. 
But what if I don't die? Well, okay, that's good, right? I'm not going to die today. But the Apostle Paul told us last week in 1 Corinthians 15 that there's an event coming. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, chapter 15, verse 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Now, you see, for the Christian in the New Testament, we need to understand that, that the New Testament writers often will use the word sleep to speak of death. It's kind of like a euphemism, but it's the idea here that they expect a resurrection. In other words, the body that goes into the ground, just like when I lay down on a couch to take a nap or I fall asleep in my bed, that that body is at rest, it's not moving, it's not really doing anything. In a similar way, the body, when it's buried, is at rest, but it's like a sleep. There's an anticipation of a resurrection, of that person coming to life again. And that's why the New Testament writers would speak of sleeping in that way, of death is sleep in that way. And Paul says, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep. Now, I think that deserves an amen. amen. <laughs> you see what that, well, Paul, let me put it in this way, we shall not all die. but we shall all be changed. Think about this. There is a generation of Christians who will never die. There is a group of people who are going to become Christians. They're going to put their trust in Christ. They're going to live their lives and they're going to live their lives like you and me. They're going to do their thing. They're going to get married. They're going to have kids. They're going to have families and jobs, and they're going to go through. They're going to come to church every Sunday, or hopefully every Sunday. They're going to worship and praise the Lord and serve and witness. And they're going to do the things that you and I have done as Christians. But there's going to come a moment in their life when that's all going to change. And Paul says, in a twinkling, in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye. And you see, what I want to do now for the rest of the time we have together is talk about what's coming. What is coming for those of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior? The Apostle Paul uh, wrote this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I don't want you to be uninformed, he says, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep. In other words, those who are dead. That you may not grieve as others who do not have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. In other words, those who have died and have been buried, God is going to raise them up with Christ. Christ's resurrection is like the first fruits. He's like the first one and he's the model. He's the example. He's the forerunner, the pioneer. He's the one who started it all and with them, with him, all those who've already died in, in Christ are going to be raised up. For we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive and who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Now that's interesting because the Apostle Paul, when he wrote this, fully anticipated that it might happen in his lifetime. And you see, what's interesting about this is that every Christian who reads the New Testament understands that God has no timetable. In other words, like this, there's like nothing that has to happen for these events to occur. 
It's not like there's something that God has to do in order for these things to take place. He's already done them. Christ has already died, been buried, risen from the dead. He's conquered sin, death, Satan, and hell. He has been victorious over the kingdoms of this world. He has ascended on high. He is sitting on the throne. And as far as God's heard, the new kingdom, the new era, the new age has already begun. Amen? Amen. I mean, you guys got a little excited here, folks. Okay, I was jumping up and down yesterday when I was thinking about these things, okay? All right, I'm sorry, okay? Like, we're talking like this is mind-blowing stuff here, okay? So none of this, like, oh, this is just wonderful, brother. That's amazing. Please, okay. We're talking about the fact that he goes on to say the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. He's going to shout, hey, you, arise. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. I remember when I was in high school and I had just been studying this and reading this and I remember we had a fire drill. It was like a January morning. And I don't know who thinks having fire drills in January is a great idea, but we do have them, you know. And we went outside and my high school had this great vista because it was on the top of a hill and you would go down the hill to the football field and beyond that on the horizon was just trees and the Palisades, which are along the Hudson River there. And it's just all trees. You don't see anything else. And I remember standing there on that tarmac looking out across on this brisk, cold January morning and suddenly the clouds started to part and rays of sunshine came pouring through and I thought to myself, this is it! I don't have to worry about algebra. I don't have to worry about geometry. I, this, this is a glorious moment. I just stood there. I'm ready, Lord. Here I am, 40 years later. But you know what? It could have been. It might have been. But you know what? There are some of you here who, if that had happened 40 years ago, you would have been lost. That's why Peter would say, the Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to a knowledge of the truth. So what was sort of like, oh, bummer, God, I got to go back to class, was actually a good thing for a lot of you. And it was a, and I, you know, I knew people in high school who weren't at that point Christians, and they had not trusted Christ. One of my best friends, we've, we've been friends my whole life. We met in high school in youth group, and we've been friends ever since. She would fight me tooth and nail. How do you, can you believe in God? He lets all these terrible things happen. And we'd argue at 2 o'clock in the morning. She was away at college, suicidal, because she just couldn't understand life. And we'd be on the phone, and I'd say, look, just before you, before you kill yourself, just call me to say goodbye, Okay. Just call me to say goodbye. And she said, okay, I'll call you to say goodbye. Because I figured if she called me to say goodbye, we'd talk, and hopefully she wouldn't do such a thing. And she got saved, but she wasn't saved in high school. She wasn't saved when I was really hoping that that moment when Jesus comes back, I, she wasn't saved at that point. And you see, when that event happens, Paul says it. He says, we're not all going to die, but we all are going to be changed. In other words, some of us are going to get resurrected without having to die. That's like fantastic. You, amen, brother. Amen. amen. It's like you know it. 
I'll tell you, no tubes, no wires, no you know, electrodes, no breathing machine. Just bypass all that ugliness. Amen, right? It's going to happen someday. And of course, for some of us, that's about the extent of our hope, right? We think, oh man, I hope that happens before I have to go through that. But then the Bible tells us there's something else coming for us. And that is that we must all stand before the judgment seat of God. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 14 that we should be careful not to judge one another. That we should not be looking at each other's lives and picking apart each other's lives and evaluating, oh, you know, this person does this or that person does that and I really don't approve of that particular you know, habit or, you know, brother so-and-so, he likes to go to the movies or sister so-and-so, she, she likes to, you know, soap operas or whatever. And we all have our little to-dos and don'ts and we think we evaluate one another. And Paul says, don't judge one another. He says, you know, who are you to judge another man's servant? Besides which, it's Christ who's going to make them stand in the day of judgment. For we all must stand before the judgment seat of God. And see, one of the things that we must understand is that this life matters to God. You know, sometimes Christians are accused of being so, like, otherworldly. You know, their mind is so fixed on, like, the afterlife that they're of no earthly good. And, and, and if that charge is in any way true, I'll tell you this, it's not Christian. It's just another form of selfishness dressed up as religion. You see, because Jesus, like we heard about it early in this morning meeting, there was an incident where he was in a synagogue and a woman came in into that synagogue who was bent over double from an, affirm, an infirmity that she'd had for 18 years. And it was a spiritual thing. It wasn't just a physical thing. It was some kind of spiritual oppression that had her literally doubled over. And it was the Sabbath day and Jesus immediately said, woman, you are free. And instantly, she could stand up straight and was miraculously delivered. And she just began praising God in the synagogue. Now, that was a little bit of like, you know, really, you know, women, you're not supposed to talk here. It's a little, a little out, of, out of place. And the synagogue ruler gets all upset. And he says to everybody, well, she's really like talking to the woman and he's talking to Jesus. But you know how that is. Sometimes people just sort of make these generic general statements when they're really targeting a certain person. He says, listen, you people. There are six days in which to work, and on the seventh is the Sabbath. If you want to get healed, come on those six days. And Jesus looks and says, you're a hypocrite. You're a hypocrite. Every Sabbath, you go out and take care of your donkey, and you lead it out so it gets water, and you take care of it. But this daughter of Abraham, who's been held in bondage for 18 years, you would deny her her freedom just because it's the Sabbath? You see... This life matters to God. And we're going to see that in a second. And you see, it matters so much that when we as Christians, even though our sins are forgiven, even though the, the debt that we owed God because of our disobedience rebellion has been completely satisfied, God's going to call into account what we did with this life. How well did we live it? The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Jesus talks a lot about this, and you're going to hear about some of it next week in the parable of the talents that Paul gave me kind of like a trailer to this morning, a preview. 
In other words, Jesus talked a lot about this fact that we have to give an account. It's not that now that I'm saved, I can, oh, I got a, like a credit card with God. I can just do whatever I want. Or I got this blank check that I can just live as I please. No. Now you have the ability to live as you should. Not as you please. And you see, the Bible makes it clear that my salvation is not what is at stake here. That's not the issue. It's not that, that am I going to heaven or not going to heaven. That was settled at the cross. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 talks about how that, that he's this master builder and he lays the foundation of Jesus Christ. That's what he says. And so you get this idea that the gospel of Jesus Christ is this foundation. You hear the gospel. You hear the good news. And it's like God is laying something down in your life that is rock solid that you can build your life on. Now the question is, what do you build your life with? You've got this foundation. It's not going anywhere. You know what? You have a solid foundation. The house can burn down. The foundation is still there. You go to California, you can see all those burned houses, all those ruins. Guess what? You can still find the foundation, the footprint of the house. The foundation doesn't go anywhere. And the Apostle Paul says, look, I'm a master builder. I'm laying down a foundation which nobody else can lay down. In other words, there's no other foundation except the foundation of Jesus Christ. So now the question is, what do you build on it? And the Apostle Paul says, we're all builders. We're all building our lives. We're making decisions every day. And the quality of those decisions and the quality of our actions and the quality of our motivations are mirrored or metaphorically speaking like wood or like hay or like stubble or like gold or like silver or like precious stones. Now, maybe Paul's talking metaphorically or maybe he's talking literally. I don't know. But what he says is that when my life, when I stand before the judgment seat of Christ, my life is going to be put to the fire. The foundation doesn't go anywhere. But what I did with that life is going to be tested. Oh, I'm going to go through the ashes looking for something, right? Maybe some diamond or gold that's left behind. Or will your house be like, Rock solid. Because it was made of stuff that just fire can't touch. You see, that's what's coming for us. If you're here this morning and you've trusted Christ as your Savior, it doesn't matter whether you know Him for a week or whether you know Him for a year or 10 years or 70 years. The fact remains that every one of us is going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account with what we do with our lives. So what kind of things are you sending to heaven? What kind of materials are you building your life with? Okay, we get through that. We're there. We're there. I got through the judgment seat of Christ. This is fantastic. The party's just starting. Amen. (laughs) Thank you, sister. I still think they're a little on the sleepy side. Because we're going to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Amen? 
Now, this is fantastic. I was, I was jumping up and down yesterday, literally. My wife says, oh, are you okay? Yeah, I'm just, this is just amazing. Revelation chapter 19 says, let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Listen, one of the things that God did when he created the heavens and the earth was he put into place this, these patterns. And one of the patterns he put into place was the idea that, that seven is a great number. You have six days to work and one day to rest. Of course, Americans, we have eight days to work and no days to rest. But, but that's a different story and a different message. But there is this wonderful association with seven. And in the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth, he also made male and female and he created them. And he performed the first wedding when he brought Eve to Adam and said, this is your wife. And he went, wow, she is woman. That was supposed to be funny, but I guess it went right over you guys' heads. You know? <laughs> hard, hard crowd this morning, I'll tell you. Tough crowd, I'll tell you, you know. But marriage in the Bible becomes this great metaphor that God has with his people. And he uses it in the Old Covenant, and he uses it in the New Covenant. And when you look at what the Jewish marriage is like, it just blows your mind. Because listen to this. Until the late Middle Ages, this is by a Jewish guy, or not me, or a Christian or anything. This is like a Jewish guy. Until the late Middle Ages, marriage consisted of two ceremonies that were marked by celebrations at two separate times with an interval in between. First came the betrothal, the erusim, and later the wedding. At the betrothal, the woman was legally married, although she still remained in her father's house. The wedding meant only that the betrothed woman, accompanied by a colorful procession, was brought to her father's, from her father's house to the house of her groom. And the legal tie with him was consummated. Now think about this. The wedding in ancient Israel was in two, two stages. The first stage was the betrothal where the, the groom literally purchased his bride. And the, way, the reason why he purchased is because in ancient times, a daughter was an asset who was valued. It wasn't a dowry. You can tell something about how cultures view women by whether they have a dowry system or whether they have a bride price system. In the bride price system, the daughter is valued. You have to pay for her because her loss is significant. In a dowry system, oh, we got to get rid of her. Here, take this, please, you know. It's like what happens in India. They have a dowry system. Women are not valued in traditional Indian culture. Is an old saying in India. The first daughter is, oh, good. The second, oh, no. The third, this is a disaster. The fourth daughter, this is a national catastrophe. Why? Because every daughter, he's got to invest assets to send her on her way. But in ancient Israel, women were valued. He was a bride price. You hus the husband had to pay for his bride. He had to purchase her. And then he went away. And while the bride waited in her father's home, the groom went away. And because groom, the, the, the grooms, they didn't have assets. They just went back to their father's house. Where in that father's house, the father said, okay, 
here's your section of the house. Prepare a room for you and your bride. What did Jesus say on the night that he was betrayed and the night before his crucifixion? Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. And I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again to receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know what's exciting about this? This this interval, the bride never knew when the groom was going to come. She never knew. It wasn't like today we sat on invitations. You got to have the, the venue set up for like a year and a half in advance. No, it was never. It, the bride never knew. And so every morning she would wake up. Is it today? Is it today? And then, then there would be the sound of the shofar. The, long, the large Jewish trumpet would sound and the herald would cry out, The bridegroom comes! And he would literally pick her up and carry her. I don't know how far. (laughs) I wish we lived closer, honey. (laughs) But he would literally carry her away from her father's house. And the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, the bridegroom comes. And he will catch them up and carry them to be with him in the air. Marriages with any type of purchase consisted of two acts. The first was the price that was paid, an agreement reached on the conditions of the sale. Sometime later, the purchaser took possession of the object. In marriage, the mohar was the down payment was paid, and a detailed agreement was reached between the families of the bride and groom. And this betrothal was followed by the wedding when the bride was brought into the home of the groom who took actual possession of her. The newly married man usually did not find a new home for himself, but occupied a nook in his father's house. I go to prepare a place for you. And the marriage feast lasted seven days. Now, there's a whole lot more coming. We could talk about the great tribulation that Jesus spoke of in the book of Matthew and that is unpackaged in the book of Revelation. We could talk about the great millennial reign of Christ that for a thousand years he rules on earth from Jerusalem. But in all honesty, those events have more to do with this world than the world to come. They have more to do with the children of Israel and the nations of this earth than they do with the church. And their story is not particularly our story. But it is an important story that God keeps his promises. He keeps his promises to his earthly people, the Jews. He keeps his promises to his bride, the church. He keeps his promise to the prophets. He keeps his promise to the nations. But then we come to Revelation chapter 20. And I will ask you to turn there for these closing few moments. Because at the end of everything, at the end of this time of trouble in the world and of great tribulation and the millennial reign of Christ, we come to those events that the Apostle Peter wrote about in his second letter. And he says that the day of the Lord will come like a thief. 
and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done it will be exposed. In chapter 21 of Revelation, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, no longer any mourning or crying or pain, for the first things have passed away. As we started this story this morning, I asked, where is home and where is the Lord? And of course, we saw that home now is in heaven because that's where the Lord is. But I want you to understand something. And I believe this more and more. The more I look into it, the more I study it. That this is just a temporary situation right now. That God always intended to dwell amongst us on earth. Where is heaven? Heaven's on earth. Where is the throne? The throne is in the New Jerusalem. Where is the New Jerusalem? On earth. Where is the Lamb? On earth. Where is the river of life and the tree of life? And you see, what this tells me is that Christianity is not this kind of platonic, ethereal, ghost thing. But that when the Bible talks about redemption, God's plan has always been to dwell among men. He started out by creating something out of nothing. And what did he say when he made it? It is very good. It's only our twisted psyche that has made the world and our religions evil and bad and the material is disposable and malleable and interchangeable and dispensable. God is never going to let this go. And even though sin marred it, and the Bible says the whole creation groans, this whole world, as beautiful it is, we know it's not the way it's supposed to be. We know that the, that the nature around us is hostile at times and disordered and chaotic and violent and random, it seems. And we look at it and say, things are just not the way they're supposed to be because we're not there yet. He says, I am making all things new. And you see, and this is the thing that blows my mind, there's no more death, there's no more sorrow, there's no more crying, there's no more sin, there's no more Satan, there's no more separation, there's no more curse, there's no more loss, there's no more ignorance, there's no more doubting, there's no more fear, there's no more failure. Amen? Amen. And that's just the beginning. 
You see, Peter talks about the day of God. And Revelation chapters 21 and 22, that's just the dawn. That's just the dawn. We read Revelation and we think, oh, we've come to the end. No, silly. You've not come to the end. You've just come to the beginning. And you know what? That story is yet to be written. But I will tell you this. It's a story that's going to be written by God. And we're going to be his pens. And we're going to go places and do things. And it's not going to be like in some apparition or ghostly existence. But it's going to be as tangible as you and I right now. It's our bodies that are resurrected. It's a material world we'll be living in. Oh, I understand. We'll be perfect. Oh, yes. (laughs) But we'll be us. You will be you, and I will be me. I'll just be the best me you have ever met. And you'll be the best you. And that's why we sang this morning, Glorious Grace. For in the ages to come, Paul says, he will show the glory of his grace as it's manifested in us. You know the old saying, come along with me and grow old with me for the best is yet to be? You know what? In eternity, we just keep getting younger. And the best will always be yet to be. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you that we've had just a little glimpse of what your word says, of all that is to come and all that is in store. I pray that as the Apostle Paul told us that we'd encourage one another, that we'd be encouraged by these words. That we would recognize that this life matters. The decisions we make, the behaviors we choose to engage in, that they are going to be held accountable. We're going to be held accountable for them, Lord. Help us to remember that. Help us to live now in light of then. And I pray, God, that we might remember that old, that old line, only one life will soon be passed. And only what's done for Christ will last. I thank you, Lord, for your son. I thank you for the glorious grace that we've experienced and that we know so little of it that that as the Queen of Sheba said, the half has not been told us. And we will wait and we will look forward to that day where we hear the voice, the bridegroom comes. And until that day, Lord, we pray, we might be faithful to our betrothed. We might be loyal to him, loving him even though we do not see him, but waiting with anticipation till the moment he appears. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.